Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. You can probably notice that this episode is being released at a different time than usual. That's because I'm taking this episode in a different direction. I still will be releasing the weekly deep dives and analyses that I usually have on my channel, but today I'm going to go in a slightly different direction and just review the most popular news stories of the past week. Please let me know and give me feedback of whether you like the segment and whether or not to continue it in the future. Without further ado, let's get started. The most pressing issue at hand is of course coronavirus, and there have been significant developments in the quest for a vaccine. In fact, the United States government signed a 1.95 billion US dollar deal for 100 million doses of the vaccine from the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. This vaccine would be available free to Americans, and it would likely first go to those most vulnerable, including frontline workers and the elderly. The trials have already started and are expected to last until October, and the vaccine is based off of messenger RNA or mRNA, which is a rarer type of vaccine. However, we do have to be a little bit skeptical, as in the past, it took four or more years in order to actually develop vaccines. We are living in unprecedented times, there is more money and time being invested into vaccine development as ever. We can try to be optimistic, as if the state was actually met, it would be an amazing development in the fight against coronavirus. Ultimately, the most important thing to keep in mind is to be prepared for any possible outcome, and that includes no vaccine, it includes having a vaccine. Now, there has been some suspicions of the Trump government that it would lower some of the regulations required, and that might be one such factor that would allow a vaccine to be produced more quickly. Of course, there is a reasonable debate to be had of whether we should be removing some of those procedures in a crisis such as coronavirus in order to get that vaccine approved more quickly. However, some opponents of Trump believe that he might actually approve a vaccine that doesn't work for the sole purpose of having the image of having that available, and if you want to look for a corruption such as that, then you should keep watch on internal FDA shifting, Federal Drug Administration shifting, and see if any important administration officials are fired, are demoted, are promoted, etc. And also to keep watch on approval of other countries, because Trump obviously doesn't have control over various other countries' approval processes. And on that note, CNN has reported that there is a deal between the same company, Pfizer, and the United Kingdom to produce 30 million doses, although the price has not been disclosed. And if that is true, and this is something that becomes approved by the United Kingdom government as well, then this is definitely a good sign towards the development of a coronavirus vaccine. Of course, all the same caveats apply. This is still very immediate information. It may change as time progresses, and we just need to keep our eyes and ears open to any changes that might happen in these various scientific institutions. Staying on the topic of the coronavirus, we're going to cross over to Europe, where the European Union has finished negotiating the recovery fund in order to restart the European economy. Now, there have been very intense negotiations, as it is the highest stakes for the European Union as has ever been. Many countries in Northern Europe, including Norway, Denmark, and the Netherlands, have opposed further grants, have opposed further stimulus because they both have more wealth and were less hard hit by the coronavirus. Ultimately, the deal that was struck involved 390 billion euros in grants and 360 billion euros in loans to various EU member states in order to alleviate some of the effects of the coronavirus and increase employment. Now, there were also various debates to be had among the process in which these grants were distributed, as countries such as the Netherlands wanted to further enforce democratic norms that it accused the leaders of Poland and Hungary of violating. Those two countries obviously opposed this measure, and what eventually happened was that there were 
some reform conditions set out in the deal in which money would be conditioned and other countries could oppose the distribution of grants if they saw a problem with other governments. However, this process would be ultimately decided upon by the EU Commission, which neither of those governments would have direct control over. The broader implications of this is that Europe is recovering, and we should certainly take note of their economic policies, where they work and where they don't. It could inform the reopening of other countries which were hit later or hit harder, and would allow for a better economic trajectory. Having that further understanding of how various economic policies do play with the threat of coronavirus and do play with the reopening process is incredibly important in order to create a long-term economic strategy, not just for the European Union, but for various countries that are going to reopen afterwards. Another thing to keep in mind for the long term is the economic divide between various EU member states, as the European Union has often had a disparate impact on various countries that are involved with it. Of course, the divide most highlighted here is the divide between those strong northern countries and some countries that may have been harder hit and were in poor economic times to start with, including Italy and Spain. The other strong threat to the European Union is the actions of the Polish and Hungarian leaders, who are often portrayed as strongmen, who are often portrayed as encroaching on democracy, and are often in opposition, sometimes using vetoes, against a lot of European policies that are otherwise popular with those other member states. And once again, it's important to continue staying vigilant and continue to keep notes of these developments. Returning to the US, the next thing that we're going to be covering is the conflict between various federal officials and groups that claim to be associated with the Black Lives Matter protests in cities such as Portland, Oregon, as well as other cities in the United States. The federal government was widely criticized for using unmarked vehicles as part of their Customs and Border Protection or Department of Homeland Security agents in order to deal with attacks on federal buildings. Of course, the main implication here is of self-defense. If you have an unmarked vehicle chasing after you, then you might be more incentivized to defend yourself. Of course, Americans are heavily armed. They might shoot at people who they deem as a threat. And this is a way that you obviously would never interact if you were being chased by a police car or anything like that. Now, there are very real threats of violence from some small number of individuals to these federal buildings that these agencies are designated to protect. However, we do have to work together in order to prevent distortion, in order to prevent conflation between these violent individuals and the broader protests. Of course, a phrase that has been used to describe these protests are mostly peaceful, and while this may be true, it doesn't truly encapsulate the nature of this divide. Of course, you're going to have various bad actors, and in fact, it is in the interests of the peaceful protesters, it is in the interests of 99% of those people to actually work together and root out those violent individuals, those people who are trying to take advantage of the protests in order to do something that's not actually aligned with them. However, the most important thing to note here is that we should be making sure that those violent individuals are the ones being targeted instead of the broader protests. When there is further power given to authorities, especially those who are directed to deal with the protests in general, it can result in police violence or violence of federal agents against people who are essentially innocent. The most important step here is to actually work together with the organizers, to work together with the organizers to a social distance, but also make a setup where the crowds are more dispersed, where it's harder to hide within them, and where peaceful protests actually work together in order to force those violent individuals to the front of the crowd in order to actually remove the bad apples from among their midst. And a lot of those Black Lives Matter organizers have actually been trying to do that themselves. If you can have this cooperation, 
then further crackdowns on the rest of the protests are not necessary. However, the step is incredibly important. And especially if you keep in mind coronavirus, it is important to have a crowd that is less densely packed, where you are going to be able to identify specific individuals and have a more intelligent, delicate process in dealing with this instead of applying excessive force to people who are just expressing their constitutional rights. Continuing with another story involving the United States, the US federal government has imposed sanctions against, against 11 Xinjiang-connected companies. Of course, Xinjiang is the province in which the Chinese government maintains quote-unquote re-education camps for Uyghur Muslims. These detention camps have been accused of human rights abuses, including arbitrary detention and even forced sterilization. This issue was brought to the forefront once again after drone footage emerged of Uyghur Muslims being put into train cars, being lined up in rows, invoking imagery of the Holocaust, which, especially in Western countries, invokes serious terrors from history. In addition to these sanctions, there's also been a visa war between the United States and China, where the United States revoked the travel permits of various Chinese officials, to which the Chinese state retaliated with several of their own visa bans to prominent U.S. politicians, including senators and congressmen. Another threatening development with regards to China is its crackdown on Hong Kong, where many of the civil liberties that were agreed upon with the deal with the United Kingdom in order to establish the One China Two Systems policy were violated, and various measures are put in place in order to address this, including a British visa plan that allows Hong Kongers a pathway to citizenship in the United Kingdom. However, the problem with dealing with China is that various Western countries are completely unwilling to actually incur costs to their domestic economies, as that would be a serious threat to their own politics. Of course, any strong economic measure against a country as powerful as China is going to have economic costs, but without these significant measures, there's not actually going to be noticeable pressure on the Chinese government. And the most important thing here is that China is suffering through some of the same economic pressures and coronavirus pressures that the rest of the world is going through. If there is any time to actually have that force put onto the Chinese government, it would be now. However, of course, the same damages are ravaging Western countries, and as democratically elected leaders tend to be extremely risk-averse in these times, reflecting the interests of the citizens, they tend to miss out on some of these opportunities that can be exerted. Of course, in order to keep in mind a very clear-eyed foreign policy, we have to use the analogy of something like chess. If you're an experienced or even moderately experienced chess player, you know that the majority of chess strategy is actually based on not allowing your opponent to play chess, in disrupting their game plan, in disrupting their development, even if it comes at a sacrifice to your own. This is a trade-off that has to be made in any oppositional strategy, and China is no exception. The real question to be asked here, which unfortunately has to be answered eventually, is to what degree various countries are willing to wait until they're willing to make economic sacrifices in exchange for foreign policy gains. The last story we're going to be covering today involves the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and it is yet another corruption scandal involving $900 million of federal money going towards a volunteer work program. So what's the problem here? Well, that work program was given to We Charity, a charity founded by the brothers Mark and Craig Kielberger, with many financial ties both to Justin Trudeau's family and the finance minister, Bill Morneau. In addition, the We Charity has had joint advertisements with Trudeau that often seem like campaign advertisements, and while they do promote We Charity itself, it is something that is extremely positive in terms of building Trudeau's image. All these are signs of self-dealing, and are signs of corruption that We Charity seems all too willing to engage in. 
Moreover, We Charity has actually been accused of corruption in other countries as well, including with leaked audio of a senior official in their Kenyan operation, Peter Rehu, who openly admitted to bribing the Kenyan government as well as threatening assassination. Now, We Charity has since fired Peter Rehu, and they claim that any money that was lost in bribes has been recovered. However, there has been no audit or third-party investigation that they've actually allowed to investigate and or confirm this. Both of these stories were first reported by online publication Canada Land, who has faced significant journalistic harassment. In fact, We Charity has actually gone after many journalistic institutions and even individuals, including threatening illegal lawsuits, making false allegations against companies such as Canada Land, and even hiring private investigators to target individual journalists, as per the claims of Canada Land reporter Jesse Brown. Because of these factors, We Charity is still incredibly opaque, and there is almost certainly much more information to be found out about it. Hopefully there will be a federal audit by the government of Canada, or there'll be further strong reporting from companies such as Canada Land. And as the story develops, I'll try my best to keep you updated. I don't really have a transition from that news segment to this argument, but if you're someone who likes clear, transparent information, if you're someone who wants more transparency in how government and media works, and you enjoy the educational content that I put out, then please just share it, just post it, share it to a few people who you think would be interested in something like our podcast, and just help us grow. And of course, check out our weekly episode that's going to be released next Tuesday, and thanks for listening.